Hey Siri, is there a secret passageway from Hogwarts to Hogsmeade? Hmm, let me think. Here's what I found on the web for is there a secret passageway from Hogwarts to Hogsmeade. Oh, we're gonna need something way better than that. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for marauders. Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. Get too near a Dementor, and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to the Quibbler Podcast. This week, we are still in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and the chapters we're reading are The Marauder's Map and The Firebolt. You are going to hear cursing galore and also spoilers in this podcast. You are also going to hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are cartographers, oversharing at the bar, euthanasia, very secret Santas, and Triskaidekaphobia. <laughs> Which means... The fear of the number 13. People are afraid of that? A lot of people are afraid of that. There's no 13th floors in like hotels and shit. Which is just a lie. 12 to 14, you're not kidding anybody. The ghosts still know where to go. At my last job, there was no floor 13. No, there's no floor, there's no floor 13 in most high-rises. Ghosts are not that stupid. There's the 13th floor at Wayside School. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other podcast. Next, we should do a Sideways Stories from Wayside School podcast because that book is also the shit. Vote uh, if you would like to see that happen. Yeah. Uh, Let us know if we should do a Lewis Sacker series. (laughs) God damn. Holes is really good, too. Uh, Cartography. I love Google Maps. Yeah. Actually, before we moved to New York City, Alex spent many an evening just wandering around the neighborhood we now live in in Brooklyn on Google Street View. And now he does that in places like Sofia, Bulgaria. Fun fact, whenever I see a new city I don't recognize in the SoundCloud stats for the Quibbler, I just drop the little Google Maps guy in your town square and wander around. So we know where you all live. We don't know the address. No, we don't know where you live. we know what your various grocery stores and town centers look like. (laughs) We do indeed. All right. Do you want to tell us what happens in these chapters? Harry spends a restless weekend in the hospital wing, clutching the remnants of the Nimbus 2000 and thinking about his dying parents. Harry realizes that when the Dementors get near him, the voice he's hearing is his mother before Lord Voldemort kills her. So, I mean, that's real as shit. Lupin returns to classes. Harry has a word with Lupin afterwards and wants to know why the Dementors affect him as much as they do. Lupin explains that because Harry has real horrors in his past, the Dementors, like, really fuck his shit up. Lupin explains that Dementors force us to relive our worst memories. So, because Harry has the embedded subconscious memory of his parents' death, in his little brain box, that is what he experiences when Dementors get near. So meditate on that, everyone, and cry forever. As we near the end of term, there's one last weekend for everyone but Harry to go to Hogsmeade. Harry's a little bummed out about this, but then motherfucking Fred and George present him with the motherfucking Marauder's Map, which is like... Google Maps on steroids. Usually I'm like, 
muggle technology superior to wizards. And uh, I, maybe you could make an argument here that it is, but the Marauder's Map shows you all of Hogwarts, where everyone is at any given moment, and uh, also little Easter eggs, like how to get into the secret passage to Honey Dukes, which is the most badass candy store you can even imagine on this or any planet. Harry gratefully takes this gift of knowledge from Fred and George and jumps into a humpback witch into a secret passageway. Weirdly, Harry's not triggered by secret passages after his whole Chamber of Secrets-like adventure last year, which involved murder snakes. But Harry wanders down the secret passage into the Honeyduke cellar, meets up with Hermione and Ron, who Hermione is skeptical of this endeavor. Ron's pretty psyched because Ron doesn't think about future ramifications of his or anyone else's decisions. They hang around the Honeydukes, check out some crazy ass candies that make you feel like you have like frogs in your stomach. And then it's real fucking cold outside. So they go to the three broomsticks. In the three broomsticks, they're having some butter beers, which are Heather. What's a butter beer? It's like, how do I describe this? It warms you from the inside. It's like amazing. It's whiskey. It's not whiskey. No, but I know, it's like, I'm kidding. It's like whiskey for babies. It is. It doesn't get you drunk. It gets house elves drunk, but that's next uh, next book. Um, it does get house elves drunk. Yeah. So I don't know if it's alcoholic or not. Hilarious. Maybe it's like. Maybe it's like decaf coffee, where like if you're not accustomed to like the tiny dregs of caffeine that are in decaf coffee, it would affect you. Right. Like maybe it's alcoholic the way like kombucha is alcoholic. Or like 1%, it's like O'Doul's. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, presum- it's better tasting than non-alcoholic beer, however, because Harry says horrible. it's the most delicious thing he's ever had in his life. Anyway, that's beside the point, because as the gang are sitting down to their butter beers. Several of the faculty, McGonagall, Professor Flitwick, Hagrid, and the Minister of Magic walk into the Three Broomsticks bar and uh, have a seat. Ron and Hermione swiftly shove Harry under the table and they overhear from Cornelius Fudge the story of what really happened with Sirius Black. Basically, Sirius Black Cornelius tells the bartender was secretly working with Voldemort the entire time. No, you have to back up. And, oh yeah, uh, there's so much here. Okay, basic, no, I can tell it in a linear fashion. you You get it done. What we find out is that Sirius Black and James Potter have had been best friends since childhood. They were thick as thieves at Hogwarts and the biggest troublemakers the school had seen up until Fred and George Weasley. Nothing changed when they grew up. Sirius was, in fact, the best man at James and Lily's wedding. And when the Potters became aware that Voldemort was searching for them, they made Sirius Black their secret keeper in the Fidelius Charm, which is basically a way to hide a secret within a human being. So as long as that person doesn't reveal the secret, Voldemort could search the town they were in over and, and over and over them, and never even find if his, them. his like nose was pressed against their parlor window. But Sirius Black was colluding with Lord Voldemort the whole time and a week after he was made secret keeper, Voldemort showed up at Lillian James Potter's home in Godric's Hollow, murdered them, tried to kill Harry and lost all his powers. 
Sirius Black had been planning, according to Cornelius Fudge, to use the moment when the Potters were murdered as a way to reveal his true allegiance to Voldemort. And when that didn't happen because Voldemort lost his powers because of Harry Potter, Sirius went mad and showed up in a crowded city street the next day, confronted by Peter Pettigrew. The best friend, another of one of the Potters' best friends. Another of the close friends of the Potters who was weeping, Lillian James, Sirius, how could you? Sirius blasted Pettigrew and 10 muggles who were in the way to smithereens. The largest piece of Peter Pettigrew they could find was a single finger. And that is what sent Sirius Black to Azkaban. So basically we find out that not only is Sirius a psychopathic murderer, but he hardcore shafted Harry's dad. And he remains Harry Potter's godfather. And he is singularly obsessed with eliminating Harry because Harry ruined his like big reveal. So that's some heavy shit to talk at a bar. Harry overhears it all and he's like, no, that's not true. That's impossible. Harry can't remember how he gets back to Hogwarts even. He's so like distraught at hearing this news. Um, The next day, Ron and Hermione, obviously knowing that Harry has like a lot of shit to process, say, hey, let's go to Hagrid's. Harry says, good. I can ask Hagrid why he never told me that my dad's best man and my godfather uh, murder helped murder my parents. So Ron and Hermione are like, mm, maybe this isn't such a good idea, but they go anyway, and we find out in Hagrid's hut, Hagrid is like weeping. He's probably had too much to drink because that's how Hagrid copes. And we find out that, well, Hagrid won't be held responsible for Buckbeak's attack on Draco Malfoy. Buckbeak has to go to trial before the Committee for the Disposal of Dangerous Creatures. So Harry realizes he can't, like, go hammer and tongs at Hagrid right now. Hagrid's really upset. They gotta help Hagrid win this case for Buckbeak. Christmas is next. There's a pretty sweet party in the Great Hall. But first, on Christmas morning, Harry receives a mysterious package which contains the motherfucking Firebolt which is the best broom ever, but nobody knows who it comes from because it doesn't have, like, there's no tag. So Ron and Harry are psyched. Hermione is very suspicious. Fast forward to that sweet party I just mentioned. Everybody's, like, opening crackers and uh, eating a lot of roast potatoes. Ron and Harry head back to the dormitory. Hermione hangs back to talk with McGonagall, probably because she's got to, like ask about taking some more classes. No, she's ratting out the firebolt. It's a suspicious package. So Hermione's like, if you see something, say something. She says something to McGonagall. McGonagall comes into the porterhole, confiscates the firebolt because it has to be checked for jinxes because it might be booby-trapped by none other than Sirius Black. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. Yo, Hermione would be on one of those posters on the subway <laughs> that was like, like, I saw something and I said something. <laughs> like, she's one of those, like, NYPD heroes on the subway posters protector, that's like, yeah. protector of New York City. Protect your fellow New Yorkers. She's you. like, I don't know. There was a mysterious broomstick. I didn't, I, I knew I should yeah. call it in. People thought I was doing the wrong thing, but I'm proud of my actions. <laughs> um, Hermione's right, by the way, but we'll get to that. So... We got to talk about wizard candy. There were shelves upon shelves of the most succulent-looking sweets imaginable. Creamy chunks of nougat, 
shimmering pink squares of coconut ice, fat, honey-colored toffees, hundreds of different kinds of chocolate in neat rows. There was a large barrel of every-flavor beans and another of fizzing whizbees, the levitating sherbet balls that Ron had mentioned. Along yet another wall were special effects sweets, Drubal's best blowing gum, which filled a room with bluebell-colored bubbles that refused to pop for days, the strange, splintery, tooth-flossing string mints, tiny black pepper imps, breathe fire for your friends, ice mice, hear your teeth chatter and squeak, peppermint creams shaped like toads, hop realistically in the stomach, fragile sugar-spun quills and exploding bonbons. So one thing I was thinking was leave it to wizards to create candy that is specifically and deliberately uncomfortable slash dangerous. <laughs> like, the acid pops. They burn a hole in Rong's tongue. That's insane. That is like a fucking chemical weapon. Well, I guess... Wizards can kind of subject themselves to these, like, weird experiences because they can regrow bones. That's actually a really good point. Wizards can have more extreme versions of a lot of the things that muggles have because danger is a different concept to them because mm -hmm. they have the ability to heal themselves from things that would, like, burning a hole in your tongue would be that's a, a horrifying that's a, experience. Yeah, that's a problem if you're a muggle, you know. Even the one where the frogs hop realistically in their stomach. Like, yo, nobody asked for that. This is <laughs> fucking terrible to me. They're really into these kind of odd physical sensations, which... Actually, which I, I think muggles would be too if they weren't dangerous. I mean, mm -hmm. people have, like, fight clubs and shit. Yeah. Like, pain is an interesting physical phenomenon mm -hmm. and i guess if you could experience pain or discomfort in like a non-risky way probably muggles would too yeah i mean i guess it's another side of pleasure but still it's just like it's so wizard culture to have candy which is supposed to be this like specifically overwhelmingly pleasurable experience that makes you feel really fucking weird man well i think candy is about sensuality in, and transgression. Especially in children's books. Because yes. these pages are ripped from Willy Wonka, where... Oh my god, that's so true. Or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is the book, where candy is spectacular and amazing and an escape, but you could drown in a fucking vat of chocolate, yo. This is another one of those chapters that really is ripped straight from Roald Dahl. It's not like ripped, but no, it's like I know, definitely not, an homage. That's not what I mean. Yeah, not mm -hmm. ripped like it's stolen, but it's... Because I feel like the, the comparisons that people make with the Harry Potter books are very often to other fantasy series. Like mm -hmm. there's pretty obvious like Lord of the Rings and stuff. But I think she actually owes a lot more to Roald Dahl than we talk about culturally all that often. Yeah. Certainly the children in peril overall tone is very Roald Dahl. But you're right, this... This candy scene is very, very, very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Even to the point where there are giant lavender bubbles in <laughs> Drupal's Best Blowing Gum. So it does seem like it's a specific which is a analogy. Which is a reference to... Violet Beauregard, who's the one that blows up like a blueberry right. in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and has to be rolled away. This is going to be a little bit of a digression, but I just want to talk about this because this is an argument that I have with a coworker of mine. <laughs> Those kids die, right? I think so. Who's the... Is it a listener? I don't know. It's 
it's my coworker Suzanne, who if you are, I don't I I don't know if she listens. If you do, hi Suzanne. No, this is it's not an argue like a big argument, but I just she and I have had this conversation a couple of times because I think that those I think that that story is genuinely sinister I think those children die well I can fill in for Suzanne because I couldn't handle that as a kid so I assumed that they didn't die and they were just I feel like I guess psychologically tortured by Willy Wonka and it's like you could have died no, but, you but didn't. there's this we rescued like, you. There's from... this whole vibe where the Oompa Loompas are like wink wink, like, yeah, sure, we'll get her out of the garbage disposal that goes straight into the incinerator. Like I read those even when I was a kid, I read that as those those selfish, greedy, bratty children. They they die. Well, the candy doesn't kill anyone in this book. So. I know, but I just wanted to bring up that particular debate no, because well, no, because it's like it it does relate to this concept of like Children in genuine peril, mm-hmm. which is true in the Harry Potter books. I think I think all the kids in Willy Wonka straight up die. Well, it's been a long time since I've read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, so I'm the not, Oompa like, Loompas seem to be being pretty sarcastic when they promise to save them. <laughs> like Mike TV doesn't get put back together. He stay well. He doesn't die, but he stays many. Yo, well, the kids and the witches die. Rolled all. Okay. Well, I mean, there's definitely there's echoes of that all through these books where. Dumbledore says, you might die a most painful death if you don't listen to instructions. And he's not really fucking with y'all. Right. He means that. Fluffy will eat your head. Yeah, Fluffy will rip your head off. Anyway, all of that is to say, and I don't know, maybe we'll leave this and maybe we won't. But all of that is to say that you're right that in this candy scene there are major echoes of Roald Dahl. And I just the candy's so imaginative and lovely and... I've mentioned this before, but there are so many scenes that you can just tuck yourself into and be cozy and cheerful in in the midst of a lot of awful stuff going on. But on the flip side, one thing I think she does really well is tap into kids' real desire for edginess and kind of pushing the envelope. Because I think the fact that a lot of the candy isn't pleasant like the blood lollipops and the cockroach clusters are really gross. <laughs> and I think that's a thing that a really, really talented writer for children does is realize that kids aren't that sweet. Kids are actually pretty perpetually looking for things that are gross or horrifying. Like kids kids really respond in a certain way to extremes. And so she's really good at not kind of like pandering to the sweet envelop like cozy quiltness of childhood Mm. and more responding to kids desire for things that are kind of bonkers which i really like about this candy scene right because it could be pastoral and it's not or like pastoral is not the right word but you know like a norman rockwell painting right it could be very much like oh it was the most beautiful candy and every like there was one candy that made you feel like you were in a castle i don't know that's no we're gonna cut that out but like she could be writing candy that's really saccharine <laughs> what is what is candy if not saccharine saccharine sorry she could be writing candy that's really saccharine but instead she's writing candy that's like kind of supremely fucked up which i think is more real what sugar kids want this sugar will fucking kill you yeah just like real sugar actually does Ooh. yeah never mind that's too dark <laughs> Um, I also, and the rest of this episode will be a digression on nutrition. <laughs> Not from us, uh, yo. Yeah, no. I also want to talk about the map. 
just briefly because the Marauders map is one of these truly iconic wizard magical devices. It's up there with the invisibility cloak in terms of just a particular stroke of ingenuity on the part of rolling. I mean, in my mind, it's better than the invisibility cloak. We've seen invisibility devices in other fantasy and fairy tales. The Marauder's Map is written by James, Sirius, Remus, and Peter. Yeah, spoiler alert. It's it's it this work of authorship. Yeah. Well, it's also just one of the most singularly inventive devices in this series. Right. It's also one of the items, it's one of the magical items you covet. It is, it feels, yes. It feels like Legend of Zelda players will relate to this. You would find in Legend of Zelda, which is this Nintendo series where you... People know what people Legend know, of Zelda Okay, is. in the Legend of Zelda video game series, you find the map and Link opens the treasure chest, there's the map to the dungeon inside, and it goes, ba-da-da-da! And then the whole world is opened up to you. And it's like that with every power-up in Legend of Zelda, where it opens up knowledge and incredible new adventures and access to spaces that you couldn't be before. And to me, the Marauder's Map is just... It's a power-up for Harry. It's... And the best power-up. And everyone would covet a map like this to unlock new adventures and find out where your like enemies are or to give you like tips on navigating the world. I love the Marauder's map. He took out his wand, touched the parchment lightly and said, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. And at once thin ink lines began to spread like a spider's web from the point that George's wand had touched. They joined each other, they crisscrossed, they fanned into every corner of the parchment. Then words began to blossom across the top, great curly green words that proclaimed, Messrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs, purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers, are proud to present the Marauder's Map. It was a map showing every detail of the Hogwarts castle and grounds. But the truly remarkable thing were the tiny ink dots moving around it, each labelled with a name in minuscule writing. Astounded, Harry bent over it. A labelled dot in the top left corner showed that Professor Dumbledore was pacing his study. The caretaker's cat, Mrs. Norris, was prowling the second floor, and Peeves, the poltergeist, was currently bouncing around the trophy room. And as Harry's eyes travelled up and down the familiar corridors, he noticed something else. This map showed a set of passages he had never entered, and many of them seemed to lead... Right into Hogsmeade, said Fred, tracing one of them with his finger. There are seven in all. On the flip side, though, it is also another example of the incredibly robust wizarding surveillance state. Like, you can see everything and everyone all the time. The difference, though, is it's not in the hands of the state. It's an act of resistance against the Hogwarts mm. disciplinary system. Yeah, that's They're a good They're pushing point. back against... Against the wizarding surveillance state, though. Against it's Filch, a direct response. It's turning, it, it's turning that eye back on... The Watchers, basically. 
Ooh, the watchers become the watched. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love that. You're so right. they can see Dumbledore, Filch, Mrs. Norris, Snape. Right, they can. No, they can see all of their oppressors in a certain way. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, oh my our, God, that made me like it even more. Yeah, it's not, it's it's made by, and not that Hogwarts students are oppressed, Lupin is. Hogwarts students are pretty oppressed by people like Filch and Snape. There's totally arbitrary and draconian discipline. Right. No, the the system of oppression in Hogwarts is pretty robust. <laughs> Certainly Neville feels pretty oppressed well, most of the time. In the way that all youth feel. Well, yes, youth is an experience of oppression. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's a nice way to look at it, though. I like that. Um, right, it's not, I mean, if It's the like minist- turning the panopticon in on itself. If the ministry had a marauder's map, That'd be insane. Right. But they don't also because their ingenuity is limited by their imaginations in ways that people like Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prong's ingenuity is not. Ooh, that was, I like that observation. I also just, I like that we have another thinking document and Harry's mind goes back to what Arthur said about Riddle's diary and that's don't trust anything that thinks for itself where you can't see its brain. In this case, maybe Harry shouldn't trust it per se i think it's going to be an interesting open question for the rest of this book whether these four invisible characters whose identities we just revealed but whose identities will be revealed in the plot are trustworthy mooney padfoot wormtail and prongs yeah um I think that they are interestingly unreliable guides for harry there's even a line later in the book where it i think it says your dad would like nothing more than, or like, no, Lupin says these men men would like nothing more than to watch you break all the rules. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the question of their reliability is a really interesting and fun one. And we're going to get to follow that thread in an interesting direction. But whether Harry should trust these four people, even though they turn out to be three of four people he trusts most in the world is an interesting open question. Also, so fucking unfair that Wormtail's name is on it because you know he did none of the magic. Mm. No, that guy is a coattail writer. <laughs> there is no fucking way that Wormtail actually contributed any magic to this map. I mean, it's impressive magic too. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's really an extraordinary document. Right. So here we have another text that Harry can assess that's yeah. dialoguing with him. A maps as texts is a whole other really interesting dialectic that I guess we can probably get into and later. And as artistic creations. Yeah. Maps as art, maps as text. Like a map is not solely a utilitarian no. document. No, and a map is also not solely... Or like, I mean, the idea that a map can be topsy-turvy and unreliable is really interesting because a map feels like such a kind of straight-laced object like people who are kind of map oriented people who follow maps I guess there's like a certain vibe that you get there a certain kind of like straight-laced like by the book vibe but I like that this kind of like subverts that notion by giving you a map that is specifically for rule breaking and kind of like an it's like this map is an agent of chaos in these books but the map is completely reliable lupin no. says later in the book the marauder's map never lies right it's not i'm not saying it's unreliable i'm just saying it sub, sort of subverts the idea of a map as a thing mm. that only 
like a square would use. It's a map that is intended to be subversive. It's the method to the madness. It is. Yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. All right. Well, we well, talked more about the map than I expected I, to. The map is amazing. The map is I love the Marauder's Ugh. map. That's why, you know, Mischief Managed is something that, well, we write it at the end of the newsletter. It is another, it's, the map is another of those calling cards among fans of Harry Potter. Yeah. Like, the map supplies this, like, real, these, like, really exciting kind of, like, sites of, like, fandom in, an, in a way that I really like. Right. Um, on the other hand, let's talk about the fucking prison industrial complex <laughs> and the Dementors, which, we've talked about the Dementors as analogs for mental illness. Let's talk a little bit about the Dementors as, I don't know, the Dementors as the state. In these two chapters, we get a few more interesting descriptions of the Dementors and their purpose, especially as it relates to Azkaban from Lupin and from Hagrid. Lupin gives us our most complete description of the Dementors so far. One of the Um, things he says is that Because of the Dementors, most of the prisoners in Azkaban go mad within weeks. Which, what the fuck? I just, here's the thing that I have a really major question about. Is Azkaban the only option that wizards have for, like, judicial? I interpret it that way because when Hagrid needs to be watched over for a few weeks because they think he may have reopened the chamber, they send him to Azkaban. Yeah, but that's like Guantanamo. No, that's like, it actually makes sense to me that they send Hagrid there. That's like a black site. (laughs) You know, like they're worried he's like a terrorist, basically. But think about like, okay, think about the muggle prison population. Mm -hmm. It is by and large nonviolent offenders. So do they send like thieves or like, I don't know if the wizarding world has drugs, but do they send like people who are charged with like fairly petty crimes to Azkaban? In the beginning of the book, Harry's worried that he's going to have to go to Azkaban for inadvertently performing underage magic. But Harry also well, doesn't know. Right, right, right. I, and but what I'm asking is, is he right? Do they send people to Azkaban well, for Fudge, that kind of shit? Fudge tells him we don't send people to Azkaban for blowing up their ants. Okay, but Fudge is also being disingenuous in that scene because he is trying to protect Harry from Sirius Black. Well, as we've seen, it's highly fucking subjective who goes to Azkaban and who doesn't. Lucius could probably be sent to Azkaban for any number of things that everybody seems to fucking know, but Hagrid gets sent to Azkaban because he may or may not have reopened the Chamber of Secrets. So it's unequal, just like our own justice system. Right. And their due process seems to be deeply lacking. But what I'm saying is like, to live in a society where all crime is punished by eternal psychological torture. And here's the other thing that it seems, the the thing that I was thinking about as the most disturbing about the way that Azkaban seems to function is you can't release people. It doesn't seem, with the exception of Hagrid, who basically goes there to be, like, held without bond, it doesn't seem like leaving Azkaban after serving a term with limits exists. And you can't release people from Azkaban because you're releasing crazy people. Like, where, how are people who have been in Azkaban and then leave going to rejoin wizarding society? Well, we asked the same question in the Muggle world. 
Okay, I mean, yes, I know that. And there are obviously really interesting and strong ways in which this relates to criminal justice in the muggle world. But consistent psychological torture of this degree is not the same as like going to like jail. Do you think that's something that Rowling is trying to convey? Like, is she anti-prison? I I just, I I can't figure out if this is like a deliberate metaphor. I think this is a strong indictment of the prison industrial complex through and through. Harry, Ron and Hermione watched him breathlessly. They had never heard Hagrid talk about his brief spell in Azkaban before. After a pause, Hermione said timidly, Is it awful in there, Hagrid? You've no idea, said Hagrid quietly. Never been anywhere like it. Thought I was going mad. Kept going over horrible stuff in me mind. The day I got expelled from Hogwarts. Day me dad died. Day I had to let Norbert go. His eyes filled with tears. Norbert was the baby dragon Hagrid had once won in a game of cards. You can't really remember who you are after a while, and you can't see the point of living at all. I used to hope I'd just die in me sleep. When they let me out, it was like being born again. Everything came flooding back. It was the best feeling in the world, mind. The Dementors weren't keen on letting me go. But you were innocent, said Hermione. Hagrid snorted. Think that matters to them? They don't care. Long as they've got a couple of hundred humans stuck there with them so they can leech all the happiness out of them, they don't give a damn who's guilty and who's not. That's like for-profit prisons. Right. And I don't know how it works in the United Kingdom, but um, prisoners are profit centers. And for the Dementors, they are a source of, like, sustenance and energy. And in, like, the real world, they're a source of profits for many companies. Like, private prison stocks spiked after Trump was elected on hopes that more people more would people, go to jail. More people would be detained prior to... Yo, that is so fucked up. Like, uh, deportation, etc. You know, that like kind of a law and order state would Prevail. become become more, more prominent. Or Little Siberia in upstate New York. So Little Siberia, is, there's a bunch of prisons upstate. And New York State itself instituted some kind of interesting anti-recidivism programs to prevent people from going back to prison. And they worked really well. So the prison populations started to decline, which meant the state would have to close some prisons. So upstate legislators started to work to get these anti-recidivism programs killed because it would ruin these towns that relied on the prison for their economies, basically. So basically, like, this is like a Dementor job creation. Program, yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, Dementors need, it's the reason they are allied with wizards, because wizards can provide them a source of souls. I think on the other hand, one of the reasons that wizards give Dementors access to prisoners is because wizards are afraid of Dementors who just roam regular society. So they want to kind of like contain the Dementor presence 
So they kind of allow Dementors access to this particular population that wizards essentially want to, like, discard. Yeah. Dementors are so fucked up. Like, that is, I think, I guess maybe aside from Lord Voldemort, that's her most, like, horrifying invention. That's, I think it's far more horrifying than Voldemort. Yeah, I think you're probably and right. I, who does Harry think of with the Bogart? Right, the Dementors. No, that's a really, really good point. So, uh, Dementors are the worst, and but just the idea that you send people to prison with the specific intention of eliminating their will to remain human. I mean, we do that now. Think about solitary. No, I know. I'm saying. I just think it's a. It's like a really, yeah. really, really strong indictment, but it's also right. a really chilling part of these children's books. Right. To, to me, to me. It, it's through and through an indictment of the specific way Western societies do prison. Yeah, that's a really good point. Also, it turns out that J.K. Rowling worked for Amnesty International for a while. So certainly there's an organization that has a pretty particular point of view on prisons and confinement in general. So um, yeah. But I guess one of my questions then, and one of the questions obviously in like Muggle Society too, which maybe we'll talk about in book five, but like does anyone deserve Azkaban? I think that's a kind of open question because does it make bad people worse is the other thing that we think about and talk about with Muggle prisons all the time. Like right. does it make, you know, like Bellatrix Lestrange, does she deserve to have her soul sucked out? I don't know that I can say yes. But whatever, this is like a whole, this is like a later conversation. Yeah. But the Dementors are, yo, terrifying. Let's talk about what we learn in the bar. <whistles> My first question, slash quibble, slash what the fuck in this chapter, <laughs> is Cordelius Fudge, who is basically the president, gives what amounts to a classified security briefing to the fucking barmaid. <laughs> Why is Madame Rosmerta in this conversation? This is clearly pretty top secret. He just says not many people know. He doesn't say don't ever tell this to anybody. No, but I mean, it's at this point, it's a matter of like national intelligence. Like Sirius Black's exact motivations and backstory seem to be a matter of national intelligence. I just like... Fudge needs, Fudge is the loosest of lips, except for Hagrid, who is clearly a constant national security risk. I love when Professor McGonagall is like, Hagrid, did you tell the entire bar that Sirius Black broke into Hogwarts? And he's like, yeah, yo, I had four pints of mead. What was I supposed to do? Well, we all gossip about horrible things that, we hear about but for harry this is his real life and you and i were discussing earlier it's like true crime it is kind of like true crime it's titillating it's interesting it's undeniably interesting but there are victims and killers at the center of those narratives but we're naturally want to know like rosmerta is horrified because she knew sirius and james but she's also like tell me more that's true. Yeah, I think true crime is an interesting thing to talk about here because it's like, it's super sad, but it's also really fascinating that Harry overhears kind of one of the essential stories of his identity in this really gossipy fashion. It's the only way he's gotten it because Draco alludes to it 
in previous chapters, which we haven't had a chance to discuss yet, but Draco says... If it were me, I'd go after him. Yeah, oh, you don't know? Oh, my lord. So, to me, I think the most arresting part of this revelation is when Harry returns to the dormitory and takes out the photo album to look at the old pictures. Because the exposition's amazing. I love the tangled web and the complication of the relationships. And the the revelation itself is really exciting. Um even though we learn later that it didn't actually happen Right, this which way. is even more interesting. Right. That even this subversion gets subverted. Yeah. I don't know. I just found it... Uh, I found that moment very, very evocative. The more you learn about who and what you come from, the more complicated it becomes to tell yourself one story about your family or, like, one story about who you are so one of the things that is interesting about this scene is just it complicates who Harry is and it complicates the legacy of his family because you know his parents trusted Sirius and so his experience of that betrayal of trust is as fresh and as rich and as meaningful as his parents's would have been if they had like lived through that and the One of the things I think that's really interesting about this is that it sort of gets at the way that family trauma has a legacy because Harry is basically feeling what his father would have felt if his father hadn't died at the hands of this betrayal. So he's sort of like adopting betrayal that he never firsthand experienced. Mm, Yeah. You know? And so it's this way in which we feel our family's ancient pain. I mean, and I think it's a really interesting depiction of how familial experience echoes over generations and generations. You know, the same way people whose grandparents were put through any number of tragedies or historical atrocities in the past, that still echoes within them and that still resonates and they still respond to those traumas so Harry is experiencing secondhand but still very fundamentally the exact betrayal that his parents sort of never got to process because they died in that betrayal right so he's sort of I mean I think that's there's something beautiful about it because he's kind of doing the work for them you know I mean he's kind of getting this it's not a gift it's complicated and and difficult but he's getting the opportunity to like synthesize and digest within himself something that they never got to do and be yeah be angry there's a wonderful book by maggie nelson called the red parts which is about her investigation of the murder when she was a very young woman of her aunt maggie nelson wasn't born yet but her aunt was killed by a serial killer when she was in college and it's sort of about this like the process of synthesizing a loss that isn't your loss but it's still yours because like even if you don't remember the person who died, that still lives in you in a really, really real way. So I think that's an interesting thing that is happening to Harry right now. Which kind of brings us to the idea of revenge. After Harry learns what happened to his parents, the next day Ron and Hermione basically stage, a. it's not really an intervention, but it's like, a preemptive intervention and say, you please don't 
do anything rash in response to what you've heard. Don't go after Black. Your parents wouldn't want you to get killed. But Harry feels like he has to do something. And I don't know what I want to say about this yet, but I wanted to have a conversation about it and kind of see what developed. One of the most interesting and the most gutting lines in this series is when Hermione says, your parents wouldn't want you to get hurt going after him. And Harry says, I don't know what my parents would want. They died before I could ask them. Which, yo, this is a book for children. That is such an emotionally intense thing to have to say as a child. Yeah. I mean, I, I put I put the book down at that moment. That's a hard moment. Yeah, it's and that's a moment where I think one of the things it does is it just it further it gives you even more scope for Harry's pain and it makes his fairly out of control rage like totally understandable. And it's hard, Ron and Hermione. I guess this is kind of on the subject of revenge. But one of the things that's hardest to watch in this book is just like, I think Ron and Hermione are extraordinary friends, especially for their age. But it's really sad because Harry has nowhere to go to talk about this loss. Ron and Hermione can't imagine. And one of the things that frustrates me about a lot of the adults in Harry's life, and this changes, and Lupin actually finally like ends this cycle because Lupin talks honestly, with Harry later on in this book about his parents. But one of the things that, not just like, oh, Dumbledore is an old bat, but one of the things that pisses me off about Dumbledore is that he doesn't talk to Harry about his family. The reason Harry feels so much rage and so much very uncontrolled desire, and I think negative desire to avenge his parents, is because no adults in his life are like allowing him to process this these feelings um healthily like Dumbledore I think owes that to Harry profoundly yeah and nobody is saying to Harry like we should or even Hagrid who's like ill-equipped to do it was enraged with Hagrid at first and he should be Hagrid deserves that rage every adult in Harry's life deserves Harry's rage because Harry is like nobody is fucking dealing with this reality of my life they're hiding it from him they're obscuring the truth They're trying to keep him, like, quote-unquote, safe. And he's like, who the fuck cares if I die? Like, I'm not emotionally safe. So I place the blame for that squarely on Dumbledore's shoulders for, like, failing utterly to give Harry an opportunity to process his parents' death. Right. And this goes back to kind of, like, our critique of, like, wizard culture overall where it doesn't include space for emotional catharsis. Like there aren't counselors, there aren't, there isn't any, there isn't anyone that Harry can talk to. So I feel really sad for Ron and Hermione and I, this is like a place of like real empathy I have for them because what are they supposed to do? Like they don't know, they're kids too and they work, I really believe that they, they do an enormous amount of emotional labor for Harry. They try so hard to be there for him but they're not equipped to deal with this and they do their best and I think actually that this scene where they try to convince him that it's not worth hurting himself is a really profoundly beautiful scene. And I think they're doing the right thing, but they also can't provide the emotional support that Harry needs. So should Harry go for revenge? No. I mean, I think... Why not? I think Ron and Hermione are right. What would that accomplish? I mean, I agree I agree with you. I'm just, uh, I'm just kind of asking that 
rhetorically. Well, I think the most important reason is because Harry's death is um, Sirius's aim on a larger scale. If you be- like evil Sirius, our evil imaginary Sirius, right. e- evil imaginary Sirius. evil Sirius. Um, I think the 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 more the most fundamental reason why it's stupid for Harry to seek revenge and why Ron and Hermione are right, and Hermione even makes this point, is like killing Harry gives Sirius like a straight shot to Voldemort. Harry should do some self preservation because Harry is one of the main things standing between Voldemort and like full power. Mm-hmm. And Harry has proved that to himself twice now. You know, Harry is able to be, I mean, Harry is able to defeat Voldemort twice after he's a baby. So I wish that there was a grown up in Harry's life to be like, look, like your life is very important. And one of the most profound things that you can do to honor your parents' memory is be a thing that Voldemort can't get past. Yeah. But what a huge responsibility. And that's why I'm saying Harry needs some fucking emotional scaffolding to think about about it that way and he's not getting any of that. Right, right. Yo, poor Harry. Okay, well that was super intense. But um semi relatedly, like let's talk about the fireball and Hermione's actions. What do you think of that? Harry can't have nice things. I know it's actually really sad. He really can't have nice things. <laughs> Harry's past makes it impossible for anything to be uncomplicated, even Quidditch. Yeah. And it is, that's his refuge, right? Yeah. Quidditch, and now Hermione trots in and wants to take this broom away from him. But at the same time, she's right. She's She's right, right, but it's sad. Like, she and McGonagall are doing the right thing, but it's so wrenching because Harry, all he wants is just to fly around on that thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have anything more to say about it than, like, it sucks that Harry can't have anything that is all the way safe. Poor buddy. I know. But he does get to have a pretty sweet Christmas dinner with Dumbledore and faculty. Kind of awkward, but also, you know. Well, here's the thing that I like about J.K. Rowling. She does a really nice job of interspersing these incredibly intense moments with really sweet, funny, delightful scenes. Like, this Christmas dinner is great. And it's really warming. Um, One of the things that I like is I just imagine Dumbledore and Flitwick just, like, totally queening out about, like, <laughs> the decor. You know, Rowling has told us that Dumbledore is gay. I feel like Flitwick is pretty clearly gay, too. And I just can imagine them, like... Okay, we're going to have lights, but they're really fairies. And you know what I mean? Like, there's just, (laughs) it's so aesthetically pleasing. And I feel like, you know, Hagrid says, like, oh, Dumbledore's got so much on his plate right now earlier. And he's just party planning. (laughs) Dumbledore really, like, he knows how to throw a fucking party. Great moment when Dumbledore gives everybody the crackers and Snape opens his and it's Neville's grandmother's hat with the vulture. And Dumbledore's just trying to say, Snape, chill out, man. Like, have a sense of humor. I like that Dumbledore trolls Snape a little bit. Yeah. yeah. He hardcore He's trolls Snape. He's trolling him. But you're right. I think I think actually Dumbledore, one thing, I'm going to give Dumbledore a, some credit right now. This is the thing that I like about Dumbledore. He really tries to give Snape a lot of opportunities to kind of like rejoin society and not be such a dour motherfucker. Yeah. Like, Dumbledore's think, just sending a message to Snape. He's like, we're all friends here, dog. Just laugh at this. Yeah. 
And no, Dumbledore, I think, tries really hard to help Snape deal with all of his Snapishness. It doesn't go great. Because one thing, one thing, Dumbledore, one thing we can give Dumbledore the character credit for is he really does see the best in people. He does, and he cares about people really profoundly. Mm-hmm. Like he loves Snape. He sees the things in Snape that make him an exceptional person, and there's a lot in Snape that makes him an exceptional person. Right. So this scene with the with the hat, he's trolling him, but he's also like, I think in a way, it's like an olive branch. It's like you are allowed to just like own this yeah like here's an opportunity to become likable by owning this but of course fucking snape totally no, passes it up you know he can't he cannot get out of his own way so i love that scene professor trelawney and professor mcgonagall's like little spat is so <laughs> funny like mcgonagall is such she's such a shade monster yeah well and, she like, sees she sees right through trelawney trelawney's like oh if i join the table that's 13 people yo um and mcgonagall's like i think we'll live yeah um trelawney's just such a phony but she's a really fun character like when she's like oh i foresaw myself leaving and joining you from my solitary luncheon and mcgonagall is like you don't say (laughs) maybe you've just been smelling this like house elf slave cooked food all week and you were like that shit those chipolatas smell delicious um, who's your unsung hero? Mine is Fang, who's such a good boy. Such a good boy. Top good doggo. Just puts his head on Hagrid's knee. So gently. To help him through his trials. Yo, can you believe they have show trials for animals? Oh my god! Yeah, it'd be like if we put one of the SeaWorld orcas on trial after it, like, killed a trainer. Insane. But like a trial. An actual, like, legal trial. <laughs> They're gonna fucking put this animal on trial. It's very dumb. <laughs> that oh. is nuts. It's, They're like, they have you anything to say for yourself? And he's just like, munch, Cre- munch, munch. Yeah, just eating, like, fucking rabbit heads or whatever yeah. hippogriffs eat. I don't know. <laughs> um, my unsung hero is Rosmerta. Uh, forgiven Ron a big old boner. Yeah. First of all, she's a curvy sort of woman, is how Rowling describes her in this very funny scene. Also, I just like, I love a gossip. I, if I was in this scene, I would be Rosmerta. I would be like, what was next, minister? And she's like kind of using her like sexy, sexy to like get <laughs> Cornelius fudge. The goods. Right. Um,. I just like how Rosemerta manages to single-handedly like get all the deets in this in this scene. Slaying with the also, heels. Also, she wears badass shoes. Yeah, she wears sparkly aquamarine high heels. So. And Harry gets to like watch her feet for a long time, and I feel like he finds that like a little bit stirring. <laughs> so overall, like she's a sexy lady and she's good stuff. All right. I think that's it. Yeah, this week's episode is brought to you by Honeydukes, a stomach ache or a hole in your tongue, guaranteed, or your money back. <laughs> uh, the audio clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Please 
do us a solid. Rate five stars, if you would. Uh, write a little bit of a review. We got such a nice one this last week. We did. We Some, got a really, really sweet one review. One of you wonderful listeners picked up on the Catwife. Hashtag Catwife. Hashtag Catwife. Hashtag Murder Tree. Hashtag Murder Tree. I don't know why I repeated you. You did. I like that. Hashtag Ask Cabin. Yeah. Hashtag Ask Cabin. <laughs> um, that's a good one. So yeah, please rate and review us. Um, we love it. And it helps us out a lot. And also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on the socials. We are at Quibbler Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Tomorrow is the superb owl. So uh, we'll be posting some owl pics, which will be sick. <laughs> Get ready for that. We also have a newsletter. It's tinyletter.com slash Quibbler Podcast. Sign up for more superb owls. Etc. Bonus links and show notes, basically. Um, next week we're actually going to read three chapters because we've got a couple of kind of shorty ones. So we will be reading The Patronus, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw, and Snape's Grudge. Good stuff coming up. Grudging. That's about it. See you next week. Thanks, amigos. Uh... How are the flubberworms? Dead, said Hagrid gloomily. Too much lettuce.